Hey guys, it's Delaney, and this is a special edition of 5x5. If you're a UAB resident, this is part of our introduction to a didactic about the opiate use disorder pathway that we're rolling out in the emergency department. If you're not a UAB resident, welcome. But speaking just to the residents, before you hit play and listen to the show, stop, go to the show notes, and please fill out the pre-survey. All right, go. You got it? Survey done. On with the show. Hey, guys. My name is Matthew Delaney, and today I want to talk about a topic that I can almost guarantee is going to generate some emotion. No matter who you are, no matter where you work, if you're in a primary care office, if you're in an urgent care, if you're in an emergency department, if you're in an urban setting, if you're in a suburban setting, you are dealing with patients with opioid use disorder on a daily basis. I can almost guarantee it. And when I talk with folks, people have really strong opinions about this, whether this is a problem we should be addressing, whether this is a problem we caused, how should we handle these patients? So I went to the literature, and it turns out when you look at the available literature in terms of addressing the problem of opioid use disorder, there's some kind of wild opinions there too. So what I want to do over the next couple of minutes is talk about three themes that come up consistently in the literature when looking at patients with opioid use disorder. The first theme is that there is a major problem with opioid use and abuse in this country. I think that one's pretty obvious. The second point is that while there is a very big problem with opioids, we as clinicians are not completely responsible for starting this problem. And then the third point, yeah, we didn't, we didn't start the problem, but the problem is here. And as clinicians, I think we can take some major steps to help solve this problem. So let's go through the first major theme that pops up, and this is the easy one. There's obviously a problem with opioids in this country. You can pull multiple different studies, and every study will tell you these staggering numbers. One of the stats was between 1999 and 2017, 400,000 people in this country died from opioid overdose. And if you look, that's about half the number of patients who have ever died from HIV. And we see this, and we feel this in the emergency department. The rates of patients who are showing up in the ED with opioid-related complications are going up significantly. There's one study that found over the past 10 years, there's been an 8% increase per year for opioid-related ED visits. And if you're like me, I, I don't go a shift without seeing somebody who has some complication from opioid use disorder. And when we see these patients in the emergency department, it's becoming increasingly clear in the literature that these are super high-risk patients in terms of short-term and then long-term morbidity and mortality. There are a couple of studies out of Massachusetts that found if you take all the patients who died from an opioid overdose, half of them had a medical visit in the year before their death. A second paper found that if you were a patient who was given naloxone pre-hospital for a presumed opioid overdose, that you had a 10% mortality at one year. So we see these patients, they've been getting Narcan pre-hospital. They've got a 1 in 10 chance of being dead within a year. So clearly, we have a public health epidemic on our hands. Tons of people are affected. And those that are affected have a really staggering associated morbidity mortality. So the first theme from the literature is not controversial. There is clearly a problem with opioids in this country. But now we get into the kind of the murk of all this. So the second theme is that I don't think that we as clinicians 
are necessarily responsible for the scope of this opioid epidemic. The popular narrative that's playing out in the press is that, well, these opioids are put on the market and that we as clinicians were over-prescribing these, that we're, you know, pain is the new extra vital sign and we're giving everybody OxyContin that shows up in the emergency department or in our primary care office, and that that's what's really caused the epidemic. And a lot of that falls on us. But when we look at the real origins of the problem, there are a bunch of different bad players here. It's easy and kind of fun to blame the pharmaceutical industry. We see this playing out currently in the courts. And the truth is that certainly the pharmaceutical industry helped cause this problem. A lot of folks will point to kind of this letter to the editor in the New England Journal of Medicine by Porter et al. in 1980. It was a one-paragraph letter. And what they said is, ah, we had over 11,000 patients who were hospitalized. None of them had a particular history of previous narcotic abuse. And they got narcotics in the hospital, and less than 1% of them became addicted. Again, remember, this is not a scientific study. This is a five-sentence letter to the editor. But this letter gets cited in subsequent studies that found that it was cited over 400 times across various papers and various journals. And pretty uncritically, it would just be stated, opioids are not addictive in patients who don't have a prior history of addiction. And this letter kind of opens the door to the idea that, hey, we could prescribe opioids to folks who show up with acute pain, who folks who have chronic pain, that these are probably safer drugs than we previously thought. Things really escalate in 1995. The FDA approves OxyContin. Purdue Pharmaceutical gets the patent on this, and it was marketed as a less addictive opioid. And when they rolled this drug out, you know, they got a 600-person sales force and actually came up with a list of about 90,000 physicians who they thought were likely to prescribe OxyContin. Now, this is just kind of how drug companies work. They are selling drugs. They're going to find people who are likely to sell the drugs. And in the 10 to 15 years after the release of OxyContin, Tons of other companies got on board, and there was this big push nationwide that physicians should be prescribing more opioids for patients because pain is undertreated, and that these are relatively safe medications. Over the same time period, something else is happening that really plays a large role in creating the opioid epidemic that we're dealing with today. And what happened was that the Mexican cartels started to emerge as real power brokers in the world of drugs. Typically, heroin had been something that had to be imported from overseas, and so the amount of heroin on the streets really wasn't that great, or it was kind of hard for folks to get heroin in certain parts of the country. But the Mexican cartels in the 70s, 80s, and 90s started to grow and then manufacture black tar heroin, which is high quality, and it's a lot less expensive than heroin that had traditionally been sold. So it's easier to get in the country, and also they started to distribute it differently. They did a lot of low-level distributions and really ran it through a bunch of family networks. And so what we started to see was a significant increase in the amount of heroin that's on the streets. A lot of these cartels are actually pretty smart. What they started to do was they would try to find places where there were a high number of opioid prescriptions, and they would try to set their distribution networks up so that they could flood that market with black tar heroin. The link between prescription opioid use and abuse and then heroin use and abuse is a little fuzzy. So I'd always thought, well, if you're taking OxyContin and you run out of OxyContin, then you would just use heroin. And there are studies that support this idea. PV et al. 2012 found that folks who are injecting heroin in Kings County, Washington, about 39% of folks who were using heroin said they had had dependence on prescription opioids before they started using heroin. That kind of fits with that popular narrative. But subsequent studies have found that 
folks who use opioids, folks who abuse opioids, actually are very unlikely to then go on and abuse heroin. A recent study found that in a group of patients who were abusing prescription opioids, only 3.6% of them initiated heroin use in the five years following their first use of a prescription opioid. So when we look at what's causing the epidemic, the drug company is flooding the market with opioids. The Mexican cartels are flooding the market with black tar heroin. And there's probably some interplay between those two groups. But ultimately, there are just a lot of opioids on the street. Around 2010, 2011, folks start to really look at this and say, man, we're really prescribing a lot of opioids. Tons of patients are taking these. We're seeing this black tar heroin really becoming a popular drug. And there are a lot of public health movements, especially within the medical community, to say, hey, let's try to decrease the amount of opioids we're prescribing. You know, that's when we started to see these drug monitoring programs pop up. There's just a lot of push that really let's look for alternatives to opioids because there's this problem. And the popular narrative is that our overprescription has led to this problem. And we start to see a decent drop in the volume of prescription for opioids. Remember, a lot of folks are taking opioids. There's a lot of black tar heroin on the streets. And now we're pulling back on the prescriptions. At the same time, another bad player shows up. And we start to see a significant increase in the amount of fentanyl that's being brought into the country. If you're a drug dealer, fentanyl's free and awesome. It's easy to get. There are a lot of places, largely overseas, that'll manufacture this. It's very potent, so you can get a little bit of fentanyl, mix it with other stuff, and sell it to a ton of people. And fentanyl rapidly becomes a very big player on the market. In Ohio, they tested drugs that were confiscated by the police, and they found between 2014 and 2015, there was a 196% increase in the amount of fentanyl they were pulling off the streets. And while fentanyl might be good for drug dealers, it's really bad for patients. And we've seen between 2012 and 2015 alone, there was a 264% increase in opioid-related deaths directly tied to synthetic opioids. And largely, that's going to be fentanyl. And that kind of leads us to where we are now. So when we really try to look and say, how did things get so bad? Where did this problem come from? There are a lot of bad players. The drug companies seem to have sold billions of dollars of medications based on really questionable information regarding the safety of these products. The Mexican cartels got a lot of black tar heroin on the streets. And then fentanyl showing up really has escalated the stakes of this increased opioid use across the country. Do we play a role as clinicians? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's very clear that there are some bad clinicians that were setting up pill mills that were really prescribing an excessive number of these medications. But what about those of us who are prescribing short courses of opioids for acute pain out of the emergency department, out of the primary care office? The answer there seems to be that we really just don't know. There's a study by Barnett et al., New England Journal of Medicine 2017, and they tried to look at clinician prescribing patterns for opioids. And what the author said is that if you were seen by a clinician who was a high utilizer, a high prescriber of opioids, you were more likely at six months to be using opioids long term compared to patients who were seen by a clinician who was a lower intensity prescriber, wrote less prescriptions for opioids. But when you look down at the details, this is a very weak association. So the rate of long term opioid use in the high prescribing group was 1.5% compared to 1.16% the low prescribing group. And if you break it down, the number needed to harm or the number of patients you'd have to treat to have one more using long-term opioids was 286. 
So is there some mild association between receiving an opioid and then using opioids long-term out of the emergency department? Probably, but it certainly doesn't seem to be as strong of a risk as we've previously thought. So point number one, yes, there's a problem. But point number two, I find to be a little bit more reassuring. We didn't really start this problem. We can blame the drug companies. We can blame the Mexican cartels. We can blame the folks who are importing fentanyl illegally into this country. That toxic stew kind of comes together, and it seems to be that's what's really led to where we are now. We should be reasonable with how we use opioids out of the ED, but we didn't start this problem. That leads us to the final theme that jumps out of the literature, and it's while we didn't start the problem, we can be a very important part in helping solve this problem. Right out of the gate, there's a paper by Denofre et al., the Journal of General Internal Medicine 2017, that we're going to come back to. But this is a study out of the ED on patients who were started on buprenorphine and naloxone. And what they found is that 27% of the patients who were enrolled, that visit where they came to the ED was their first contact with the healthcare system for their dependents. So whether you believe that we started this problem, whether you really want to solve this problem, patients are coming to us in the emergency department because of their problem with opioids. In terms of options that we can do out of the ED, a lot depends on where you work. So important things are going to be evaluating the patient, getting the patient plugged in for further treatment and kind of management down the road. But things that I can do, no matter where I work, I can prescribe things. So I was trained that if you're in opiate withdrawal, then what we'll do is we'll give you some clonidine. That's going to help you feel a little bit better. Maybe if we had some naloxone sitting around, we could give you that. But it was kind of just, hey, this really stinks, and you're going to feel bad. It will just make you feel a little bit better. In the past couple of years, there's been a big push for buprenorphine. And we're really starting to see the first fruits of this literature where we're looking at, does buprenorphine work? How does it work compared to the other things we've previously been doing? But almost all of the studies to date suggest that buprenorphine is probably the best option we have in terms of prescriptions we can write out of the emergency department. When looking at a study to suggest that buprenorphine probably works well, the best one out there seems to be that Dionofrio study. They took about 300 patients with opioid use disorder who came to the ED, and they randomized them into one of three groups. They were either referred, which means, hey, here's a list of folks who can treat you for substance abuse. They received a brief intervention. There was kind of a structured way they would talk to them about drug abuse, addiction in the ED, or they were given buprenorphine and then given 10 weeks of follow-up with a primary care physician to continue that buprenorphine. And the authors found that at two months, patients who were given buprenorphine were randomized to that group were much less likely to be using opioids illicitly and were much more likely to be involved in a formal addiction treatment. Unfortunately, when you looked at the groups at six months and 12 months, there weren't differences between the groups. But one of the key things here is that at two months, buprenorphine really seemed to improve patient outcomes. But remember, the buprenorphine was a 10-week intervention. And after 10 weeks, the patients were either tapered off of buprenorphine or were transitioned to other treatment providers. And so the fact that the groups had similar outcomes at 6 months and 12 months, to me, doesn't mean that buprenorphine doesn't work. But it kind of suggests that maybe we need to lengthen the treatment period for folks. But in any event, I think it's very clear from this study that patients were more likely to have good outcomes short-term, so up to two months, if they were initiated on buprenorphine out of the ED. Buprenorphine seems to outperform 
things that we had previously done, like clonidine and naltrexone. So a recent study by Morgan et al., 2019, in drug and alcohol dependence, found that patients who were given buprenorphine had a lower risk of overdose during their course of treatment. And after stopping their treatment, they did not see a subsequent drop in the rates of overdose in patients who got naltrexone. So a little signal here that maybe buprenorphine works better than naltrexone alone. Clonidine is one of my old favorites. I've got it saved on my desktop in terms of how to prescribe it. But a 2017 Cochrane collaboration found that clonidine was outperformed by buprenorphine in terms of helping patients stay clean and helping them complete treatment. And they report a number needed to treat a four. So I think the things we've used previously, naltrexone, clonidine, they may have a role in helping alleviate patients' symptoms or doing some down-the-road risk reduction. But buprenorphine seems to be the agent that's most likely to improve patient-oriented outcomes. Is it a perfect medication? Absolutely not. To even prescribe buprenorphine in the U.S., you've got to get what's called an X waiver, and that takes about 8 to 10 hours. you got to sign up for the class. I get that there's a barrier to even prescribing this medication. And then other things come up. You know, if I start someone with buprenorphine, who do they follow up with? If I work in an inner city hospital, do I, do I have someone that can see these patients and continue this prescription down the road? And if we take an evidence-based look, we really don't have a perfect answer. If the best study to date has about 300 patients randomized to three different groups, it's hard to draw definitive conclusions. Who should we prescribe this for? How long should we prescribe it? What's the right dose? Long-term, does this really improve patient outcomes? And I think in October of 2019, when we're recording this, the answer is we really don't know. That being said, we've got a major problem on our hands. I think we all agree that the problem is huge. We didn't start this problem. There are a lot of people who have a lot more skin in that game than us on the front lines in the emergency department. But despite the fact that we didn't start the problem, patients are undoubtedly coming to us looking for help with this problem. We can't avoid it. Anywhere you work, you're going to see patients with opioid use disorder. I think recognizing that these are very high-risk patients, using our resources, and really thinking about are there treatments we can initiate that could help improve outcomes for patients really may go a long way towards helping us get this problem under control.